All right, if you'd open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 12. As we come to the end of chapter 12, there's probably a sigh of relief that is going across the church because this is one of the hardest chapters in all of the Gospels. It's, it talks about judgment. It talks about it talks about uh, it talks about the unforgivable sin. It talks about last week when the unfaithful will be cut into pieces. In this one chapter, Jesus, in Jesus' third year of ministry began. He he is consistently getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, where he will be sacrificed and, and fulfill his purpose on the cross. The weight of the cross is looming upon him, and he's getting more and more blunt in his teaching. In this chapter alone, he has, he has told us that the leaven of the Pharisees is pervasive and is leading people to hell. He has taught that we should have no fear of men because we cannot affect, men cannot affect their heavenly home, only God. He's taught that if you do not acknowledge Christ before men, that he will not acknowledge us before the Father. He's taught that there is an unforgivable sin where, you sh where should you continue in disbelief, he will give you over to your disbelief and it will be impossible to repent. He has taught that if your focus is on material things instead of heavenly, then you may be a false disciple. And just last week, to be ready because when he comes... He will judge, and if you are not ready, then your unfaithfulness will be proof of an unrepentant heart. My goodness, I'm breathing a sigh of relief that we're getting through this, and today is actually the hardest of them all. This is the hardest text to deal with. In fact, the only non-hard text to deal with that we've had in all of chapter 12 was the week that I went on the canoe trip. <laughs> Had I thought ahead, I would have given Steve this text, and I would have dealt with that text, talking about, talking about not having anxiety. In our text this morning, we're going to see four things. We're going to see the dedication of Christ, verse 49 and 50. He, he is focused on the Father's plan above all. Second, we're going to see the division of Christ. Things begin to get dicey. That Christ has come to bring separation, and he specifically says not peace. Three, we're going to see the deciphering of Christ's return. That though we do not know the hour, we can still know the season of his coming and we must be ready for his coming. And finally, we're given the direction of Christ. That Jesus tells us that what we should do is repent and turn to Christ so that we know and will be ready for Jesus' return. I've entitled this message... Be ready, part two. Stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word, starting in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that already be kindled. I have a baptism to, bap to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowd, 
When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south winds blowing, you say there will be scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you, do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he, he drag you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer. The officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. This is the word of God. As hard as it is to hear sometimes, as hard as it is to understand sometimes. It has been preserved for over 2,000 years for your sake and for mine. Receive it as the very words of God. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and you are worthy of praise. Father, I pray that as we come to you with a hard text, that you would open our eyes by the power of your Spirit to the goodness of it. Father, I pray that you would use and speak through me this morning, that your word would be clear. It's in your precious Son's name I pray. Amen. In our day and age, the world looks at America as a Christian nation. They think of American and Christian as synonymous, the same thing. It is, it is not as, as high as it is, it is, it is, as hard as it is for us to, I don't know what that's supposed to say, as hard as it is, but as, as low as the numbers are that are claiming Christianity now, it's about 40%, it used to be about 70 as, as hard as, as low as it's gotten, the vast majority of those 40% would come to a text like this today and be completely confused. When, when I came to this text a couple weeks ago when I, was, when, I was, when I was looking ahead, I got a little nervous. Because we're, we're talking about a God that is not the same as many pastors preach. Many pastors preach on God's love, peace, and mercy, and grace, but few, rarely, do they preach on his wrath and his justice. This morning, Jesus pleads with the crowd. He shows his heart, and he shows the reality of his wrath and judgment. And we must remember that God's wrath, and this is important, that God's wrath and God's judgment are fully and wholly good, as hard as it is for us to understand. Let's dive into this difficult text. First, we're going to see the dedication of Christ. After, right after last week ended, when he's, he's speaking of being ready, he said in verse 48, but the one who, who did not know and did what, what deserved a, beat, a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand much more. And then he, he goes right into the text. There's no break here. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth. If you were asking the question, of, if you were asked the question this morning on the way into church and you were talking to people, why did Jesus come? 
I really doubt most of you would say, well, he came to cast fire. He came to cast judgments. Yet that purpose remains. One of the purposes that Jesus has come is to bring judgment upon the earth. Now, the question that we have to ask is, how is this good? How is it good that God is going to come and judge? He's going to bring fire upon the earth. Anytime we talk about fire, it's not a good thing. It's, it's, a, it's a bad thing from our sight because it's judgment. But how is it good? Why is it that, why is God, that, that God desires to bring this judgment? And why is that good? Well, it's good because until God cleanses sin, there will be sin. There has to be judgment to make a clean people. Because we're not good. We're not clean. And judgment on evil is a good thing, even though it's hard to reconcile in our minds. There was a student in the class that one time that asked if we would know that people were suffering in hell when we get to heaven. And the answer shocked the entire class. He said, son... When you're in heaven, you will rejoice at the sight of every sinner in hell because good judgment glorifies God. And you will be so immersed, so focused on the glory of God that anything that brings God glory, you will rejoice in. In our earthly context right now, when we are still focused on this, that, and the other, not fully and wholly focused on the glory of God, that, that sounds audacious. That sounds crazy. That sounds just unimaginable. And yet, when we get to heaven, we're not going to have all of these other things that are weighing us down. We're going to be fully and wholly focused solely on the glory of God. It's a sobering truth, but it's true all the same. When we get to heaven and are finally rid of our sinful flesh, we will finally love God how he deserves to be loved. And in so comparison, the greatest love that we have on earth will look like we hated them compared to how much we love God. Think about that for a second. And that's not diminishing the love we have on earth. That, that is expounding upon the love we will have for God. It matters more that God is glorified than anything else. And when we get to heaven, all the layers of sin will be stripped away and we will finally love God as he wants. And so we... Two, we'll be able, as Jesus is doing here, be able to glorify God in judgment. So Jesus here tells us that one of the reasons that he has come is to bring judgment. But even more shocking than that, he continues. Look at the text. And would that it were already kindled. My goodness. How can the Jesus we know say this? Would that the, the, the judgment that people burning in hell for all of eternity already start? Would that it have been, been started now? That's what it means to be kindled. John MacArthur says that right here, we have a glimpse into the heart of God. God puts up with, us with so much sin. He is so patient, but he is ready to deal out his wrath. That's a reality. And his, his judgment because, and his judgment because his wrath and his judgment are good. Beloved, he will not have a purified earth. He will not have a purified church. He will not have a purified people until judgment comes. And God, just as we should be awaiting the, the, the wedding feast supper of the Lamb, 
God is awaiting the wedding supper of the Lamb when he will come and he will gather people from all four corners of the earth and he will sit, they will sit down with him in, in perfect harmony. God is patient. But a sobering reality is he doesn't have to be. God is good either way. The heart of God is to, to purify his people and to rid the world of sin. He continues in this next verse and he kind of gives an explanation of partially why this is. Verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Now, just he's already been baptized. We did that last year, right? We did that in Luke, I think it was chapter 3. The end of chapter 3. He was baptized by John the Baptist. So what's he talking about? That he has a baptism that he's going to be in the future. And not only that, it continues as, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Well, we have to understand that baptism was a common word in the Greek language. Baptism simply means to be immersed. One of the reasons we're Baptists, we, we hold very strongly to baptism is by immersion. Why? Because it means, the word literally means to be immersed. Side note, the, the only way that I know that we can be baptiz- baptized by sprinkling is to go, by, go under a waterfall. You've got to be immersed in it, right? It, it, you have to be immersed. Well, what is Jesus going to be immersed in? And what is it that is distressing him until it's accomplished? It's the wrath of God. He will be fully and wholly immersed in the same wrath that he's, he's saying, the same fire that he's saying he wishes would come on the earth now, he's saying he is about to be immersed in it. He is about to be fully cloaked, fully immersed in the wrath of God for all our sins. The wrath of God, more so than any one person will ever experience in hell. Because he experienced hell for all that would come to him in a moment in time. He'll be immersed in God's wrath. He'll be immersed in his judgment so that you can receive grace. He'll be immersed in his justice so that you can receive peace. You see, Jesus dreads the idea of receiving wrath, the judgment and justice of God. He does it so that you can be part of it. You see that? The cross looms in the near future. And as it comes, the plea of the people grow stronger. God is good and will not tolerate sin. But he has, he has made a way for you to receive the perfection required to get to heaven. And most people don't, don't grasp that reality. What's require, the requirement of heaven? It's perfection. Most people say, no, no, it can't be perfection. We can't be perfect. Well, of course we can't. That's why it's not of you. Read in, read in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it's not of works. If it was of you, it would be of works. You, the requirement of heaven is perfection, which is why the substitutionary atonement, two big words, theological words, but substitute, were put in place, atonement, were paid for. So we've been replaced in our payment. So he, take, he took our sin and he gave us our, uh, his perfection. 
And because he gave us his perfection, we now have that which is required of us to go to heaven. Because he had this, um, this baptism that he had to be baptized with. Because he was distressed over this. This isn't the only time it tells us he's distressed over this. When we get to the later on in Luke, it's going to say in the Garden of Eden, when his capillaries, his, his blood vessels, his, his sweat glands were literally turning into blood. And he was sweating drops of blood. Because he was so distressed. He wasn't distressed of the nails in his, in his wrist. He wasn't distressed of the crown of thorns. He was distressed that the wrath of God was going to be kindled upon him for our sake. And yet he goes. That's why I call this the dedication of Christ. Because even though he was experiencing great distress, his goal, his Focus, his hope was found only in Christ and in, in God. And so as the cross loomed, he became more fervent in the reality of obedience to the Father. Jesus took the distress of, judge, of judgment so that the that he would purify people for himself. He every step, every chapter, every verse, Jesus gets closer. To experiencing the full wrath of God for your sins and for mine. Next, we're going to see the division of Christ. That was a hard saying. He wishes, he hopes that judgment will be kindled. Well, this is another one. Do you think the division of Christ, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? Now, let's just stop there for a second. Why on earth would we think that he came to bring peace on earth? Well, let's see. Go back to the beginning of Luke. When, when he's announced before the, the, the angels are announcing, he says, peace on earth, goodwill to men. When, when he goes before the, the, the uh, when he's brought before the uh, Anna, she says, he, he has come and he will bring peace. Peace is a very, and numerous times when, he's, when he cleanses people and he casts out demons, what does he say? He says, go in peace. Of course we're going to think he brought, came to bring peace. But he, he says here, no. I tell you, rather division. Literally, the response in the original language says, no, division I will bring. In other words, there's no parsing of words we can do here to make it say what it doesn't say. It's a strong statement. The cross is both the greatest unifying force and the greatest dividing force in all of history. Let me say that again. The cross, Jesus on the cross, Christ himself is the greatest unifying force and the greatest dividing force in all of history. What do I mean by that? In Christ, Christians are unified. You're unified to other Christians. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, they are brought together by the work of Christ. If you're on a trip and you find out someone's a Christian, you got a lot in common with them. I don't care if they speak the same language as you. I don't care what they look like. you got a lot in common with them because you serve the same master. But outside of Christ, it will be division. He divides history. History hinges upon the cross. A.D. and B.C. or A.D.E. and B.C.E. as they changed it recently. It hinges upon Christ's birth. It splits the calendar. 
It's what in history, I mean, I said the history was B.C., it's counter with B.C. and E. and B.C. and A.D. or whatever those are. The history is, it, you have the, the prehistoric era and the historic era. It's what's families. The believing and non-believing. Even within, even within Christianity, sometimes it splits families from denomination to denomination. I remember when I got saved and I was I was up at camp and I had accepted Christ and I came down and I, I was going to get baptized. And I remember my grandma looking at me and saying, "You've already been baptized." I was raised in the Presbyterian Church. Said so I was sprinkled, but I wasn't baptized, and that was hard for her. She came. She didn't let it show very much. But it was hard for her. Because I, in so doing, even amongst Christians, that, was, that seemed like a rejection. So it, it'll bring division. Tell you about my brother. My brother, when the last time he was here, he pulled me outside. He said, I want to talk to you as my brother, not as a man of God. I looked at him and said, I can't separate the two. I said, then, I'm, then I have nothing to say. Now he ended up talking to me, but he ended up yelling at me about being about how terrible and crazy my God was. That's okay. But he wanted to invite friends. When I first became a Christian, I got back. First I held my grandpa being kind of weirded out by that. Then my, my two best friends at the time, one was a non-practicing Jehovah Witness, and the other one was a non-practicing ethnic Jew. <laughs> so you, you can imagine the strife that was right there within the year. They both left. I haven't talked to them but one time since. Christ will make division. Because what, when Christ comes into your life, when Christ comes into your heart, you have a new focus. You have a new hope. You have a new life. Right? Jesus, said, Jesus told Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Christ unifies believers, but it divides us from the world. He's the most unifying and the most divisive character in all of history. Text continues to explain it a little bit more. It says, for, just in case we were confused about that, Jesus decides to be nice and explicit for us, for now... From now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. There will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law <coughs> against mother-in-law. He's not speaking of, of division for the pure sake of division. He's saying there will be division if we're living a Christian life amidst non-Christians. We're living the Christian life. We're trying to follow after Christ. We're trying and seeking to, to obey, as I read from Psalm 119, loving his law. There will come division, even within family. Because Jesus says that Christ is more important. Christ is more important than any of you. There's nothing in this world that will unite people tighter or divide people stronger. Jesus said, if you are not with me, you are against me. It's a clear divide. 
Clear division is important because if people think that they are good enough, they're never going to repent. That's why he does. That's why he says this. Because when we are in our family, when we're with our friends, when we are out amongst the world, when we're doing whatever we're doing, we have to realize that most people think they're just good enough to get to heaven. And they don't realize that the requirement is perfection. I don't care if your good, good works outweigh your bad works, which isn't true anyways. I don't care if you say that, though. I'll, I'll concede that. But when you're talking about God, one bad work, one evil work, one misstep, is worthy of an eternity of hell. The division of Christ. The dividing of Christ. Sounds like a second one. Uh, let's look at the, the third point. Deciphering, the deciphering of Christ's return. He uses common logic. First thing he does is he... he he also said to the crowds, he turns to the crowds. Now remember, the crowds have begun to turn against Jesus at this point. They've, be, they've begun to grumble. They've begun to side with the Pharisees. The Pharisees in the last chapter said, this, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. And that sentiment is beginning to, to go through the crowds. They're, they're, they're getting hostile against him, but he's still the, the best act in town. So they want to come and they want, they want to fight with him a little bit. They also want to see all the crazy things he's doing. He says, when you see the clouds rise in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat. And it happens. He's using common logic. Judah and Titus do this in our house. They know what day it is based on what people are wearing or what people are doing. Right? So Monday through Thursday, my mom comes. And so they're dressed by 9 o'clock. So they know it's Dina Day. Right? Friday is Papa's Day. They know it's Papa's Day because they're going outside at 9 o'clock in their pajamas. <laughs> so church, Sunday is church day. And they know that because I always come up dressed all fancy because I never dress like this outside of church day. There's no need for technology, special readings, special degree, special degrees, that special knowledge. You see, that Jesus is saying you simply look at what's happening and you can understand the the reality. He's saying you look at the at the clouds and you know rain is coming. Now the the <coughs> ge geography of this was very simple. They were in Jerusalem. You look to the west, and you have the, the sea. And where the sea is, that's where clouds get their water. And so you know if you're looking to the west and there's clouds, rain's coming. It was simple. It was plain. You didn't have to have all this crazy knowledge. They just knew it. And he says, and he gives the second one. He says about the scorching heat from the, from the south, they were in the desert. So the south, if the wind was blowing from the south, they knew it wasn't coming off the cool sea. It was coming from the south, which is always hotter. Basic logic. And then he's taught, he condemns them. No, he says, you hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not, not know how to interpret the present time? No, that would just caught them off guard. You can do this, you can see that. Hypocrites. Think about that for a second. You can, you can understand this, you can understand that. You're a hypocrite. That, that just would have kept you completely off guard here. And yet, he tells us that 
Just as you can look out, as Jude and Titus can look and see what people are wearing and know what day it is, you can look around and know that the time is coming when Christ is coming back. We don't know when. We don't have a specific day and hour. But we know he is. And if you look, if you think back to last week, he actually condemned them because they weren't ready. And now he's saying, be ready. I don't care when he comes back, be ready. Because he is coming back. One way or another, he will come back. In other words, if, if, if you would just use the same basic observation and a little common sense, you would know who it is that's standing in front of you. But instead, you're running around with your heads in the sand. Think of all the signs Jesus does. Think of what he has said. Think of all of the, all of the things that Jesus has shown to these people, and now they're calling him the son of Satan? If you only knew who it was standing in front of you. If you would only look at the signs that I performed, raising people from the dead, curing the, the blind, lame, walk, the sins are forgiven. If you would only listen to the words of God that are being proclaimed to you. And he ends this chapter with a similar plea in the form of a parable. We're going to see the direction of Christ. So he, and what I mean by that is what he directs us to do, what he tells us to do. Now listen to the parable. And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officers, and the officers put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid every last penny. So he's using a parable saying, you would normally, this before we had all, all these high fancy paid lawyers and judges, normally before you would get to the judge of the, of the little town, you would go to the person and assuming you've done wrong here, there's an assumption there that you are in the wrong. And the, assuming you've done wrong, he said, you're going to go to that person and you're going to try to settle. You're going to try and make it right. You're going to try and, and get out of this. Because you're coming to a point where there's no more turning. There's no more chance. There's no more chance of repentance. There's no more chance of, of going back. And he's saying that this is exactly what our souls, our state is. There, will, there is a time right now, right now, we can turn to Christ and we can repent of our sins and we can believe in him and he will wash us with the precious blood of Christ. But there is coming a time, there is coming a time when we will stand before the judge. And at that moment, when we have been brought before Christ, verse 59, I tell you, you will never get out until you pay to every last penny. Well, it's real. He's saying, repent and believe in Christ. Because if you wait too long, you'll never get out. You'll pay your judgment where Christ could have. Instead of you placing the judgment for your sins upon Christ and him giving the substitutionary atonement, placing his peace, his mercy, his justice, his grace, his perfection upon you, you will have to pay for what he already paid for. He begs them, turn, because hell is coming. Everyone always wonders where hellfire and brimstone preaching comes from. Jesus did. That comes. 
Once you get to the judge, it's too late. The payment must be made. You need to reckon your debt now. This is a hard text to study all week. I'm sure it was a hard text to hear. What do we take from it? What do we take from this rough text to go against the grain of what we've heard growing up? It may go against the grain of some of the things we read in Scripture. And then not that it's opposite, but it goes against the grain of what we know about, know about God. Two things. First, we accept it. We accept it as the Word of God. It's true. It's right. It's good. Second, it should put on fire our evangelism. Because I'm assuming that the ones that are, the majority at least, of the ones that are here amidst this coronavirus and, and, and coming into a, a church to hear a young guy yell at you, most of you are probably saved. But there's people in every single one of your lives that are not. So this should light on fire evangelism. Because it's only Christ that can cleanse us. And if people die without being cleansed, they will go and they will pay for their own sins. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are good and worthy to be praised. Even amidst hard texts, hard sermons to hear, Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Father, if there is any here that don't know you, that have not turned, that have not submitted, that have not repented, believed, I pray that you would push, put it on their hearts right now. I pray that you would guide them to the cross. Lead them to the knowledge of your perfect Father, I pray that you would stir up in us a passion for evangelism. A passion for this little area of Lee County. A passion for our friends. A passion for our family. A passion for all those that don't know you. Just come your day. In your precious son's name, I pray. Amen.